I think, you know, we, we look at that creating that auditory environment as something that is very important. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, remember that time, that summer, when all the homeschool conferences were canceled and you were not allowed to go out and speak anywhere? And, wow, that was just an incredible summer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a a year I would like to erase from my memory. (laughs) Except it's not over yet. It's not over yet. What Events are still being canceled. Events are still being canceled, but yet we, of course, to try and keep your sanity and just just because it was so much fun, we decided to do our own online writing conference here at IEW. It was great. It was. June 27th, a yeah. day I will never forget. <laughs> yes, it was It was such a great day. The whole idea of the conference was, you know, to for our families that love IEW, that love you, and wanted to just get maybe a feel for a homeschool conference. We actually did a little virtual booth. The name of it was From Imitation to Innovation. You did your first talk from copywork to composition, which kind of is along, definitely along that same line. But the whole idea is teaching writing is easier than you think. I think we get caught up in, as you say, all the different arts of language, all the language, the spelling and the grammar and the handwriting. And, and you know, you come down to actually what's part of our, our mission statement, part of our logo is... The arts of language is listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And that's what we do here at IEW. Anyway, so many people attended live. Uh, I think we had, well, thousands and thousands of people attended yeah, live. And one of the things I found uh, most exciting mm-hmm. was the number and diversity of people from other countries. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Pakistan and Oman and South Africa and Philippines and some people must have been up at odd hours yes. to, to tune in. And of course, it was an all-day event, so mm-hmm. it was just one continuous yep. eight-hour stream. Yep. Uh, although we did have the different things, and then of course, probably the boldest thing. Yes. We never did it before. I'm not sure we ever want to do it again. <laughs> we live streamed a student class. Yeah. And it was delightful to hear, you know, people, you know, writing in or responding, you mm-hmm. know. Their child had such a good experience. Yeah. You know, even though it was a virtual event, mm-hmm. the impact was perhaps greater. You know, I've been thinking about this year, and and there are other virtual conferences and things mm-hmm. and webinars here and Zooms there. It's possible that I have talked to more people mm-hmm. this summer mm-hmm. than in a normal summer where I would be at 12 to 15 conferences and different states all over the place. Yes, and of course, face to, there's nothing that replaces face-to-face. But I believe that's true, Andrew, be, 
between actually attending live or listening to your recordings, more people have been exposed to your message, yeah. which I think is wonderful. And, and there's more people interested in finding out about right. you know how, whether they're going to actually keep their kids home or mm-hmm. there's going to be a kind of hybrid situation. Exactly. And, or they want to continue to help their children yeah. given the chaos of circumstances. So, you know, we and other you know, curriculum companies, some of my friends, we've seen a big uptick mm-hmm. in interest and traffic. And mm-hmm. so we want to help everyone exactly. as best we can. But exactly. the, um, the international thing has just been so interesting to me because right. uh, it's not just the U.S. that shut down schools. It's not just the U.S. where there's an increase in interest in alternative education. Right, exactly. It is, after all, a global pandemic, yeah. right? So... One of the things that we did as a part of the registration for the conference, and then while the conference was going on, was we invited questions. And we had, before the conference even started, (laughs) over 800 questions. And we tried to answer a lot of them at the actual conference. I think we maybe answered... 742, (laughs) and now there's only 58 left over. Well, actually, it's probably... uh, We probably got through eight, you and I. Okay. And, yeah, there's a lot more that were left over. But our customer service team right. personally answered each and every one of They've those questions. they been hammering out those yep. replies. God bless them. Yeah. But I did get an email actually from your daughter. And this is what she said. This is She works for us. She's a part of our hybrid oh, school Oh, so team. she wasn't complaining about my cooking. No. Okay. <laughs> no, not at all. I just mentioned that it's your daughter so that you would you know, know that your daughter's actually working and doing great work for us. <laughs> I, I believe that, yeah. <laughs> So she says, hello, while looking through the questions from our online conference, I am stunned by how many people are asking about teaching IEW either to an, a- an ESL student, such as adult students, or teachers, their second language is English, and they are concerned about teaching it themselves. Mm-hmm. I think this would be a great topic to cover in a podcast. And so and I that said... that is our subject for the day? It is our subject for the day. So I asked her to send me you know, a dozen or so representative questions. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've categorized them into two general categories. One is, what tips can you share regarding teaching students whose English is not their first language? Mm-hmm. And then the other is, I'm a teacher whose English is not my first language. How can I teach writing? So we'll just see how much we can get through, what sure. content we can get through today. And, and if we spill over... We'll make it a part two. We, we have almost an infinite number of episodes to fill. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> if we keep doing this every week for 10 years. <laughs> 10 more years, maybe. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to mention something that we often say to people who are looking into our program is that this is a writing program really for anyone whether you're in a homeschool environment, whether you're in a classroom, whether you're in a hybrid school situation, we definitely have seen those children who do not like to write and don't think they're very good at it become successful and actually enjoy it. We have those gifted and talented writers who who love the the structure that it that it brings to their writing and then maybe even English language learners. So, wow, here we are. The writing program for everyone. Do you, Can we really do that? Can we fill that bill? Can we teach English to anyone who can speak and read and write English? Well, uh, Dr. Suzuki believed that we could teach music mm-hmm. to any child. Right. That, you know, regardless of inborn talent or mm-hmm. aptitude, 
one of his first students was blind. Mm. So that was kind of a disability of sorts, right. at, at least given the traditional approach to teaching music at right, that time. Yeah. So, you know, I look at that similarity and think, yes, every child can learn. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't know if I ever told you this, but there was kind of a little ritual that happened at the end of the national concert. So every year in the Budokan, which is like the big, big sports arena place in Tokyo, uh, they would rent this thing for a day, and violin students and cello and other instruments, but mostly violin, come from all over Japan. And they would start with this very small group of, of children playing some unbelievably difficult piece of music, like the Tchaikovsky Concerto, in perfect unison on the floor. And there's maybe 20 of them. And then they would add in some more, and then they would play something not quite as challenging, like the Mendelssohn. Then he would add in some more, and they'd get into book 10, play the Mozart, and then they'd add in some more, and they'd get down to book 6. And this this was kind of a, a very long event. They didn't play <laughs> every piece in the whole repertoire. But it would end uh, with the maximum, about 2,000 children. And, of course, the ones that started are playing every piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they would end them with— Because they remember every piece. Yeah, in yeah they memorized wow. them. So they mm-hmm. had this incredible database mm-hmm. of, of memorized repertoire. And then they would end with, you know, the four-year-olds would come on and join in for Twinkle Variation and Theme. And it was just just astounding, this the impact of this national concert. And, of course— you know, parents and grandparents and relatives and all of us, you know, the teacher trainees, the kink you say, we would go and help organize this thing. But at the very, very end, Dr. Suzuki would say a certain thing, and then the students would respond in a certain way. And the, the rough English translation, he would say, every child can learn. And then the students would say, it all depends on the teacher. Then Suzuki would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the teacher. And then all the children would say, thank you, teacher. Mm -hmm. Then he would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the parents. And then all the children would say, thank you, parents. And then he would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the student. And then all the children would say, I will do my best. Mm-hmm. And it just the impact of that, because that was his philosophy encapsulated in something that everyone knew, but the recitation of it mm-hmm. was the affirmation. And, and you know, it, it's kind of funny because if you say everything depends on the teacher and everything depends on the parent and everything depends on the student, well, that's the truth of the situation. Right, right. And uh, so... You know, th- th- that legacy of every any child, every child can learn to play the violin right. no matter what the circumstance. I have even seen children missing fingers mm-hmm. on their left hand playing the violin in reverse. Okay. Had, had it engineered to mm-hmm. reverse the strings and use their, their left hand for the bow and learn to use the fingers on their right hand. Right. Um, and play as well as anyone. I mean, you, you would think certainly that would be an incapacitating disability, mm-hmm. but no. So how does that connect with what we do? Well, every child can learn, but it does all depend on... The teacher. The teacher. The parent. parent. And the student. Yeah. Yep. So I wonder, even as you're telling this story, and I'm getting actually a little teary-eyed just envisioning this, I wonder if every teacher who teaches a group of students 
can kind of do that recitation with the students before they leave class so that the students feel feel the empowerment to do their best so that when they come to class and they don't have to admit that they waited to the last minute to do their homework, <laughs> well, <laughs> we can only dream, I, right? I think in our American society, mm. it would feel rather awkward mm. to most. You know, the, the Eastern cultures tend to have a, a little bit more of a, I don't know, a a ritualistic tradition of mm. doing certain things in very certain ways mm-hmm. and then passing that on for, mm-hmm. you know, generations after generations. Yeah. Uh, we we do that, but not as consciously or intentionally as the Japanese do. So I'm not sure it would work in quite the same poetic manner, <laughs> yeah. but anyone who'd like to try it, you're welcome to do so. Absolutely. So... Should we start with the teacher perspective or the student perspective? Because I know that you have personally learned to speak another language and used some methods that I want to talk about either today or next time. Or and but I also know that you have taught students whose in, whose first language is not English. Yeah. So well, I think uh, you know the students who ask the question, the answer for them is also the answer to okay. the teacher. Okay. Here's how to help your students. So we'll just kind of blend them and see. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, most students are going to say something like, English is not my first language. How do I do better? Okay. You know, how do I learn better to, to listen, speak, read, write, and think? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think for the ESL world, those are more integrated even because when they're separated, uh, it becomes more disjunct and more difficult. So if we want to be able to speak and write a language, we are dependent on the database. Mm-hmm. The The difference, of course, is that that database is generally not established in the most natural way at the earliest period. So you don't have the natural advantages of a native speaker. Uh, you come to it, you know, later. Some some children would move here at 10 or 12, and they seem to be still in that sensitive period for language acquisition, uh, coming to it much later, or trying to learn language while living in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. You don't have that same environmental. So the first thing to apply Suzuki's principles would be create the right environment. Okay, And that would be, of course, bringing the language into your world, listening you know, to mm-hmm. whatever you can that is clear, not too far above a comprehension level. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be a little bit above the comprehension level, but not too far because it's got to be interesting enough. It's got to have kind of vocabulary that connects with you, you and your experience. You know, so just listening to English as best you can. Now, I know... Uh, my family spent three months in um, Uruguay and Argentina, and uh, I had one daughter who was not quite old enough to go out and do some of the things that everybody else was doing, so she would stay in the house there and basically watch soap operas mm-hmm. in Spanish mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for hours a day. And this, she said, she learned more uh, Spanish by listening to the television, daytime mm. television. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it's not something that would come to my mind as, gee, I really want to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, she, in fact, just a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation, and she said, yeah, I, I felt kind of guilty about watching so much TV 
but I learned a lot of Spanish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how can we bring that in? Um, audiobooks are great. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching a five-year-old grandson right now. He's at our house staying for a couple weeks. And he's listening on his little uh, I, I, iPod. It's like an iPod. I think it's an actual phone, but it's not oh, a right. working one. It's sure. like an old one his sure. mom had. Anyway, he's listening to the boxcar children. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I get up in the morning. I come out. It's 645. And he's been sitting there just all by himself for mm-hmm. probably half an hour or more mm-hmm. just listening. Mm-hmm. And so I start listening. And I realize there is no way he understands every word that's being said. Sure. But it must be enough that he's interested enough to just sit there and listen Mm -hmm. rather than say, that's boring and go do something else. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we we look at that creating that auditory environment as something that is very important. Right. I have a friend who has been studying Latin for many years, and uh, he finds that if he just puts on recordings of the Latin textbook being read in Latin and just listens again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. it really improves his confidence in both being able to you know, read and understand as well as use those words in mm-hmm. the speaking. Mm-hmm. So that would be the first thing is tr- strive to create an auditory environment where you get a good, solid, if not continuous, high-frequency input of that language. So teachers should provide some type of vehicle for that, maybe in their classroom or as homework, listen to this particular audiobook or there's so much available right now that's, you know, free mm-hmm. that you can listen to and that's yeah. just great. And then a student, you know, especially an, an older motivated student because they want to do their best, right? They can just own that and be listening more intentionally because some of these questions came from adult English language learners. Sure. You know, (laughs) some of these questions were worded in such a way that I knew that they were English language learners. So, yeah. So, you know, that that listening is going to be the first aspect Mm -hmm. of building the language database, uh, whether it's your native tongue or whether it's a foreign language you're trying to learn. You have the advantage. You know, I went to Japan I lived there three years, so I had a huge advantage because pretty much all every place you would go all the time, you're hearing Japanese. It's a lot harder to find that type of environment if you're not living in the country you know, where True. the language is spoken. So you have to artificially create that somehow. The next area, of course, would be speaking. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of two aspects to this, but most people only think about the second. Okay which would be conversation. Um, You have to practice talking to people in that language to be able to more quickly find the words if you know them or come up with some substitutes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. put them in the right order and use the right elements. Uh, You know, grammar varies a bit from language to language. Sure. So you have to, to do that. But a lot of people don't think about the speaking aspect in terms of recitation of memorized language. Right. Okay, so that that would be the first part. Do that first. Well, I, you know, both are going to be valuable. Mm-hmm. You, I don't think you would say do one, stop it, and do the other. But, I see. But don't do one in exclusion to the other. Got it. And I think most times 
people say, oh, I want to learn Spanish, so I need to find someone who speaks Spanish so I can practice talking with them. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the idea of I want to find something written in Spanish and memorize that mm -hmm. and practice saying it mm -hmm. so that those words move from the passive vocabulary into the active vocabulary, the grammatical patterns then become templates that can be accessed more easily in the kind of impromptu. Again, it's imitation to innovation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, learn something, recite it again and again, have it memorized, don't lose that. That's imitation. In innovation, okay, let's have a conversation. Which of those words and ideas can pop out from the memorized set into the uh, impromptu, spontaneous dialogue. And you, of course, have a story that illustrates this so well in your talk, Nurturing Competent Communicators. But can I beg you to tell that story here? Well, for I think For those listeners yeah. that, like me who have maybe heard it a hundred times or for a listener who may not have ever heard this story. There's no one who's heard this a hundred times except you. <laughs> maybe you. <laughs> but uh, sure. So I was, you know, I was in Japan and I've been there about a year and a half and I was very aggressive about learning the language. So I tried intentionally to spend more of my time with ja my Japanese fellow students than with the English speaking foreigners, mm -hmm. of which we were a minority. But, you know, you would tend to hang out or live with the people. Mm -hmm. I intentionally tried to hang out and live with people who spoke Japanese. Mm -hmm. I had a Japanese teacher. He was actually a high school English teacher. Oh, interesting. And so I didn't have to pay him because I would get a Japanese lesson twice a week, and then I would uh, just engage in you know pretty high level of English conversation with him. Mm -hmm. uh, he had uh, learned, you know, he'd spent a, a couple years in a foreign university, so he's pretty fluent. But mm -hmm. we had a great friendship, and so I was doing that. And then I determined at some point that I also needed to learn. If I was going to actually learn the language, I'm going to have to learn to read it. And then once I started to learn to read it, I realized the only possible way I could read it would be to learn how to write it. Mm -hmm. And that means go back to first grade. Mm -hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. means get a little book with all of the, you know, kind of characters mm -hmm. and uh, learn and be able to write those from memory and then learn the first grade kanji and then the second grade kanji. And I worked through. And so I did that. And I probably spent, I don't know, a good hour or more every morning before mm -hmm. school. I would just sit in my little, my little house in the winter, it was cold, so I'm bundled up under the <laughs> kotatsu table with the blanket over and the yes. heater right behind I'm me. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> um, and I would just sit there copying characters, and, and then I would actually copy you know, sentences so I could see how the characters in the kana would go together because it's not exactly the same as hearing it. It's more precise. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was making good progress, but I think I felt after about a year and a half, I kind of hit a wall. I knew all the words that I needed to know to say pretty much anything I wanted to say. And I could be understood by people if they were patient. And I could understand people if they talked slowly. And to me, mm -hmm. it was a lot harder to understand overhearing conversation between, you know, two other people. Sure. But, but anyway, I, I kind of hit this wall. Like, what do I do? I, I could learn more vocabulary. I could keep studying grammar. But... 
pretty much half of that. So what I got in my mind was, hey, I'm a Suzuki Method student. I should probably try Suzuki Method on myself to learn Japanese. Okay. Because, you know, one of Suzuki's whole ideas is we're not just teaching music. This is an education system by which anyone can learn anything. Right. And uh, so I thought, well, one of the things all Suzuki students do, properly trained ones, is they memorize their repertoire. Mm -hmm. And they have this huge database of memorized repertoire, which then allows them a facility with improvisation Mm, that a normal student would just not have. Right. Right? Or normal. I would say a non-Suzuki trained, having memorized a lot of repertoire student. Not normal, but... (laughs) So I decided to memorize a big chunk of Japanese language. So I went to the bookstore and I got uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. Jaku Tomame no Ki. Okay. In Japanese. It's a kid's book, right? Mm-hmm. Illustrated children's book. But, you know, not a wimpy little Jack and the Beanstalk. A couple hundred sentences worth of Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. Took it to my Japanese teacher with my tape recorder. <laughs> if anyone remembers that. And I asked him to record the whole thing so that I could listen to it. Mm-hmm. And I had a little Walkman. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Your, the, those miraculously handy portable cassette so players small. with headphones, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I would listen to it while I was, you know, cooking my breakfast or riding my bicycle to school. Mm-hmm. And then I also had the printed version, and I could read it well enough. And so I just started memorizing this thing. Uh, the way you'd memorize anything, slowly, mm-hmm. like just one sentence, and you say it again and again and again and again until you can do that without hesitation. Then I would memorize the next sentence and say both of those sentences again and again and again and again until I could do that without hesitation. Then I would try for the third sentence, and I would just recite everything I had memorized continuously many times a day, filling up as much time as I could. And it took months, but I did get it. Good. I got the entire book. Good job. And this changed my life mm-hmm. in two ways. Number one, I could entertain Japanese children like you would not believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> I would go to someone's house for dinner. I would just start telling them, you know, mukashi, mukashi, Jack to you no koden wa imashita. Jack wa itazure ko nan da kedo. Yeah, I could go on for a while. but <laughs> And they're just kind of stunned <laughs> because... They had never seen anyone who could do this, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, a big, funny-looking white guy with a weird accent. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> but so, so that was kind of fun. But mm-hmm. the most important thing is I noticed that as I was talking, as I was just having dialogue with anybody, a little pattern, a phrase or a clause or a sentence, mm. a grammatical pattern would kind of hop out of Jack and the Beanstalk. I could then change the words, mm-hmm. the, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, the parts of it, and say what I wanted to say with a grammatical pattern which I could not have intuited just by thinking through the rules of Japanese grammar. Right. Because really, in language, the possible combinations of how to do things are almost unlimited. I mean, mm-hmm. not quite infinite, but mm-hmm. it's, it's huge. And uh, you, you would never, never be able to extrapolate all the possibilities, uh, but by having that database of patterns, then it added hugely. It was, it was a big leap mm-hmm. forward. And uh, I also... 
realized that one of the best ways to get some good things to say to people were to memorize jokes. Oh, that's great. So I actually asked my Japanese teacher to um, teach me Mm -hmm. um, puns and jokes in Japanese. And, of course, just like in English, uh, they have many words that sound the same but have different meaning. Mm -hmm. And so then I would come across as being this, you know, uh, superbly eloquent guy because I could tell really subtle jokes in Japanese. So what's the word for nose in Japanese? Hana. And what's the word for flower in Japanese? Hana. Yeah. So I happen to know that because my mother-in-law is Japanese. And yeah. it's like, yeah, I, you wouldn't think that. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember one very elaborate joke. And it was quite a story. It went on for a while. It was about a, a, a koi fish. Mm-hmm. A fish. And koi means that kind of fish. But it also means love. Oh. Romantic love mm-hmm. in Japanese. And then the fish is swimming down a river. And he, he swims into an old boot that's at the bottom of the river. Uh-huh. So hakaru is a verb meaning to put on. And you would use that expression. Uh, you would use that verb if you were putting on your shoes. Mm-hmm. Right? Hakaru. But it also means kind of to stick. So there's an idiom in Japanese, koi wa hakanai, which basically means romantic love never lasts. Okay. Right? Okay. So you've got this fish swimming into a boot, and then the punchline is koi wa hakanai. The fish cannot get into the boot. <laughs> and, and, of course, they recognize that. So anyway, I don't know if there's any Japanese speakers out there who've heard that joke before, but <laughs> I was awfully proud of the fact that I got that, you know, the subtlety of that. So I think memorizing uh, jokes is a great way to get some insight mm-hmm. into uh, the language, and then you see, oh, wow, there's these double kind of double meanings or uh, what we, we call, I guess, homophones. Yes, and what I like about that, I, you know, plug here for our YouTube channel that, and we'll put a link in the show notes, where you have your jokes. And so we've got a bunch of jokes that we did. We did these a couple of years ago before we got involved in the big show project right, of the yeah. Structure and Style for Students, and we haven't had much time to have you do any more jokes for us. And, of course, we also have your joke-telling on our Facebook page. But well, and, and what people should do mm-hmm. is, whether they're you know native speakers or wanting to learn the jokes, take a keyword outline mm-hmm. as I'm telling the joke mm-hmm. and then try to reconstruct the joke from the keyword outline. Well, we'll we're going to talk about that next time because yeah. I think that's a higher level for English language learners. Yeah. But one of the things that I love about what you were talking about is you were getting a native speaker to record these for you. So you weren't just reading the words and trying to pronounce them correctly, but you were listening exactly, and yeah. were pronouncing it correctly because you were trying to imitate that master. Yeah. And I think that, I, in some ways, I think that was what was missing from my mother-in-law's training. Mm. She came to the United States when she was 35 or so, so mm-hmm. definitely older, yeah. and spent many, many years of her life learning English, but even to this day, and she's 95 today and still alive, God bless her soul, but she is so hard to understand. Well, of course, now that she's older, but even even when she was younger, her English was never very clear. Even though she could write well, and at times corrected my own son's papers, oh. <laughs> much to their uh, chagrin. But 
her English wasn't very clear. And I think what you're talking about is that listening and speaking using a native and, source. And doing it very intentionally. Yep. One last quick little story. Um, I think you've heard me tell this one. I was uh, uh, in Washington State at a school that had a very high Spanish-speaking population. Mm-hmm. And so most of the children in the school, English was their second language. And I went in, and I had done teacher training, you know, professional development for, for the whole district. Mm-hmm. So I was doing demo classes. I came into this, uh, I think it was grade four or five, and it was what they call SET, Spanish-English transition class. Mm. So they're a little higher than than some, but not yet able to do all subjects in mm-hmm. English. And um, I gave them a, you know, a little keyword outline, and then I said, I'm going to give you homework. And I was going to have them take the keyword outline and go tell it to someone. Mm-hmm. As soon as I said that word, I'm going to give you homework, the whole class just burst out in unison, reciting, homework, oh, homework, I hate you, you stink. I wish I could wash you right down the sink. Oh, homework, oh, homework, you're giving me fits. If I had a bomb, I would blow you to bits. That's just the first stanza. They went on for all three stanzas. Of course, this is a a well-known poem by Jack Prelutsky. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was, you know, delighted, of course. But afterwards, I asked the teacher, and I said, how did you know mm-hmm. that that would be so good for mm-hmm. these students? Because it's not a lot of teachers that you would uh, meet who would realize the value of doing that, you know, in a group, everybody memorizing the same poem, reciting it, you know, regularly to, to learn it. And, and know on cue when to say it all together. I love well, that. <laughs> she said to me then, she said, well... English is not my first language. Mm. I grew up in Puerto Rico. Mm. Mm -hmm. But when I came to uh, the States, I studied English and I memorized poems to help build my vocabulary. Oh, interesting. Yep. And I thought, you know, there it is. Um, I mean, memorizing poetry will build vocabulary for anyone and everyone, regardless if English is your second language or not. We should develop a course Let's call it Linguistic Linguistic Development Development Through through Poetry poetry Memorization. memorization. That's a a catchy title. It's a really long title, Andrew. You must have come up with it. (laughs) And, of course, we do sell that product. um, But, you know, oftentimes when I'm at a conference and I meet someone who says, I'm really trying to improve my English, Mm -hmm. I'll often say, get this program. Or if you don't want to buy it, go go get some poems. Mm -hmm. Get someone to record them for you. Listen to them so you can pick up on the finer points of the pronunciations, and uh, memorize these poems and just start building that database. Yep. Well, that's great, Andrew. And big surprise, we ran out of time. Well, that happens. We'll have to come back next week. And we started with listening and speaking. I'm sure there's a reading and writing element to this English language acquisition as well, correct? I'm assuming. (laughs) Okay, we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.